are a good God. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you came, that you saved us, that you died, that you rose again. And Lord, that you are coming again as conquering king. We thank you for that. And Jesus, today I pray that you would send your spirit again to empower us. Lord, may you be speaking to us. May we hear what you want to say to us today. And may we not just be hearers of the word, but may we do what it says. Lord God, I pray that you would empower us today. Lord, we love you and thank you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it seems as if it's something in people's nature to love entertainment. We love to be entertained. We love to sit and watch different things. And in some of my reading, some of my research, I've actually read that people, as they're watching, there's something physiologically that goes on in your brain, and it actually senses as if you are doing what you're watching. And so so sports, for instance, sometimes that's why my dad would always cheer really loud when, you know, his team would score a goal in hockey or whatever because you feel invested in it that's why we can get emotionally engaged when we're watching a movie because we feel like we're there like we're participating in the action and one of the greatest forms of entertainment seems to be sports there's something captivating about sports you know and it's the topic of conversation a lot of the time when the olympics are playing or going on everybody's talking about oh did you see that oh this person did this or that game or whatever. Um, it's a huge topic of conversation. Or when when hockey is going on, when the hockey season's happening, everybody's talking, oh, is it Calgary Flames or Edmonton Oilers, right? Or maybe you're a fan of somebody or some other team. But that's a huge topic of conversation. And, and you know, we all love different, different sports. Well, maybe you don't. And if you don't, I'm sorry, because this doesn't really apply to you. But, you know, football or baseball. And if you want to see Pastor Paul light up, He doesn't just talk about the Bible. You can talk to him about the Bible, but talk to him about baseball. He'll light up. A couple weeks ago, I asked him about some ball games or whatever, and he was like, oh, I'm so excited. And so him and Patty are actually going to some games down in Seattle. So when he gets back, he'll tell you all about the games, and he's collecting baseballs from all the different stadiums. So it's pretty cool. He's quite passionate about baseball. So, you know, it's fun because we love sports. We love to be involved in that. We feel like we're a part of it when we're watching sometimes. And you know, we've all heard of the underdog, and I love the story of the Jamaican bobsled team, and I know cool runnings, there's a lot of added, like, you know, extra that's not true, but, you know, that Jamaican bobsled team, that's crazy in the 1988 Olympics, that's incredible, and they still have bobsledding teams because it started back in the 80s. You know, we've all heard of those different athletes who have overcome so much to compete, There's this lady called uh, Wilma Rudolph, who at the age of four had polio. They never thought she would walk again. And she went under, or she underwent rigorous training in physiotherapy and all of this different stuff to finally walk. And not only did she walk, but she became an incredible athlete, a sprinter, in fact. And when she was at the age of 20, she was the first woman to win three gold medals in the 1960 Olympics. That's incredible. I love stories like that. Or, you know, there's something invested into athletes like who are the, the star and they need to perform when it counts. Right? You know, you think of Sidney Crosby scoring that gold medal um, goal back in the, back a couple years back in the Olympics. Like, there's something that captivates us about sports and about athletics. 
However, what we do not see and what we don't think about a lot of the time is the rigorous training that these athletes go through. We don't think about their schedule and how hard their workouts are. We don't think about how their training actually affects their, what they eat, what they do, and their time isn't really their own because it's all scheduled around their training. Even their sleep is scheduled around that. We don't see that discipline. We don't feel that pain when they're working out. We just share in their glory when they win, you know? And in the same way, like, I don't know about you, but I like sports. I like being active, and I've always been active, and I I enjoy playing anything, and I enjoy playing everything, basically. But here's the deal. I'm not very good at anything. (laughs) You know, I am, like, decent, and I can play sports, but I have never excelled or been exceptional in anything. And partly because I just don't care enough, you know? I don't have that inner drive like those top athletes where you watch them and you're like, wow, yeah, I'm not doing that, right? Like, and maybe you're kind of in that same spot and maybe not in athletics, but maybe with school or maybe your career, maybe musically. I don't know, maybe you watch people and you have a lot of admiration for people who put in that crazy amount of work, but you're like, yeah, I don't have that deep inner drive to put in that much work to be that exceptional. Now, this morning, I don't want to talk about, you know, living up to our potential or anything like that or our gifts, but what I do want to talk about is training for godliness. And what does that look like? Because we're actually called to train in godliness, train for a godly life. And so this morning, I want to look at why we should train. Why should we actually put in effort to live a godly life? I want to look at what does training actually look like to be godly. And lastly, oh, whoops, I didn't put it in there. How? How should we train? How should we actually do that? What does that practically look like? So that's where we're going to go this morning. And you know, when people think of religion a lot of the time, they think of a list of rules or do's and don'ts and so on and so forth. And to an extent, Christians, we should want to live a godly life because of what God has given us. But here's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is that none of us can earn our way to heaven. None of us can be good enough to get to heaven. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, is that it's not a requirement to do good to get to heaven, but rather, here's the good news, God himself opened a way for us to get to heaven. Because we couldn't pay that price, we couldn't be good enough, God came and he paid the price on our behalf. And we just need to step into that and receive his grace, his salvation that he gives us. And so Christianity, it's not about trying really hard, but rather we're saved to do good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved to do good works. And so this morning, I want to look at this gift of grace that God has given us, and that that grace should actually inspire and empower us to live a godly life. So in Titus, in this little small letter that Paul the Apostle wrote, um, we're going to look at this, and it talks a lot about godliness. And so if you want to flip in Titus chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. And as you flip there, just a little bit of background. I kind of like to know what's going on because this letter was actually written to somebody specific and to a church to encourage them. And so I like to know some of the background because it makes it come alive. So in Titus, like, uh, who is he, right? If you read through the book of Acts, you don't hear his, his name once. But in the 
like throughout the New Testament, his name is actually mentioned 13 times. And he was actually a close person to Paul, the apostle. And it seems as though most scholars agree that Titus actually was in Jerusalem in Acts 15 when they were disputing or debating about um, whether or not Greeks need to follow the Jewish laws and all of that. And Titus was actually a Greek believer. And he went there to say, hey, Do we need to follow the Jewish laws? Do I need to be circumcised? That kind of stuff, right? And so Titus was most likely there. And Paul seems like he was really close with Titus because he calls him my true son in the faith, my brother, my fellow worker, my partner. Those are some of the terms that Paul uses to describe Titus throughout his writings. So Titus actually as well was probably on the third missionary journey with Paul when he went to Ephesus. And from there... Paul most likely sent Titus to go and take the letter to the, first, or to the Corinthian church, which if you've read Corinthians, you know that would not have been a fun, um, a fun task because Corinthians was pretty harsh. So it'd be like Titus coming and be like, hey, here you go, good luck. Like, you know, he didn't want to take the wrath probably. Titus, but Titus was trusted by Paul with a lot. And then actually after Acts, so after Paul is released from his first imprisonment, it seems as though... Most scholars agree that that Titus and Paul went to the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean. And there they established a church, and Paul then commissioned Titus to be the pastor and to set up order within the church. And then Paul left and continued on. And then Paul writes this letter to Titus. That's why it's named Titus. You know, Paul writes it. And why did he write it? He wrote it first to encourage Titus. In his, in his commissioning to be the pastor there, he wrote it to encourage him. He also wrote it to give authority to Titus because letters back then weren't just written to one person. They were read to the entire church. So the entire church would have heard this, heard this, um, this letter. And it was to give authority to Titus before the congregation to say, hey, I've put this guy in, the, in authority there. And if he calls you out and he rebukes you, because it talks about rebuking here, you know, I've actually authorized him to do that. And lastly, the other reason why Paul would have written this book to Titus or this letter is also to challenge the church to live a godly life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So our passage starts in verse 11 in chapter 2, and it's the reason or the theology of why we're supposed to live a godly life. The morals that he lays out beforehand, this is the reason why. And it starts out with the word for. And that's what connects this moralistic teaching to the theology of why we're supposed to live this way. So it continue, It starts off in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace Grace of God has appeared. You know, I hated English when I was growing up. I hated poems. I'm I'm like a literal person, and I don't want to decide or try to figure out where the subject is, what the verb is. I don't care what an adjective is or an adverb. Like, you know, I just didn't care about that stuff. But all of a sudden, when I was going through this again, and I was like, oh, I dusted off my Greek, and I was like getting in there and parsing verbs and nouns, and I was like, oh, this is so exciting. And maybe it's because I'm a bit of a nerd, you know, <laughs> like Greek, woohoo. Um, but as I was going through it, I realized, well, number one, either Greek didn't have the same rules as English to have like a set amount like for a sentence because their sentences are way run on long sentences. Or maybe Paul just didn't care about like, you know, the the actual um, 
rules of the language. And so he'd just write and write and write and write. So actually all of verse 11 to 14 is one sentence in Greek. And so there's one subject in there. And the subject is grace. Grace is the main subject. Grace is the one from which everything comes after it. It's the one that produces. It's what produces what we're going to see later on throughout this passage. So if grace is the focus of this passage, what is grace? You know, we toss around that word a lot in church or Christianity, and it's like, oh, the grace of God. Well, what is grace? And really simply, grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's a gift. You know, it's, it's getting what we don't deserve. So in a sense, grace, the salvation of God, right? We don't deserve it. We can't be good enough to earn it, but God gives it freely. It's a gift. Mercy, on the other hand, is getting, um, or it's not getting what we deserve. So what do we deserve? We deserve punishment for our sins, but God shows mercy. So we don't get what we deserve, that's mercy, and getting what we don't deserve. Oh, sorry, I mixed that up. But you guys get the picture, okay? Um, (laughs) Words, sometimes not my strong suit. Um, But you get the picture. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's a gift. We can't earn it. It's given freely. And so it says the grace of God has appeared. And what was this grace? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus, who was God, God in the flesh, the exact representation of God, the image of the invisible God. It says in John's gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace has appeared, Paul says. Jesus came, and this is good news. And the the appearing, this, this imagery is incredible when you dig into the Greek a little bit, because that appearing, it's the word epiphany. And this word is a, it's a very vibrant word. You know, one scholar says it was used in classical Greek of the dawn or daybreak. When the sun leaps over the horizon into view. Can you imagine that? That's what grace is compared to. That's what grace was like coming into this world. Like the dawning of the sun leaping over the horizon. Another commentator says that Paul used this highly suggestive term to illustrate the dawning of the light of God's gospel upon a dark and lost world. This is the good news that we talk about in Christianity. This is what we put our hope on, that when the world looks so bleak, so hopeless, Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he was God and he walked among us, but he was fully man and he did not sin. And the whole reason he lived was to die. Why did he need to die? Because we could not pay the penalty for our sin. We deserve death, but God showed mercy. And he took death upon himself. And he hung on a cross because of our sin. God himself came and he showed grace, giving us what we didn't deserve. So in Jesus' death... We see justice because God is just. The penalty for sin had to be paid. And so justice was paid. But we also see on the cross, Jesus, his grace. Sometimes we think in Christianity, how can God be both good and just? Or how can he be both just and gracious? Well, Jesus showed us on the cross. Because he took the penalty and the penalty was paid. This is the grace that has appeared. But Jesus didn't stay dead. 
He rose again on the third day. And in his resurrection, we see his power and we see his victory. For once in all, he conquered sin and death. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Because every other religion, the deity says you need to do good in order to get to heaven. Whereas in Christianity, God says you can't do good. So I'm going to pay the price for you so that you can live a good life. This is the difference. This is the exciting part. And you know, for us, all we have to do is receive that gift of grace that God has given freely. To say, Jesus, I confess my sins and I ask that you would come and that you would, that you would fill me and forgive me. And he will. That's what God promises. It says in Romans that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's simple in that sense. This grace, this, this gift has dawned. It has appeared, and it's a big deal. This is what Christians base their lives on, this gift of grace that brings salvation to all. And not that all people will be saved, but rather everybody will have an opportunity to receive grace. You know, as Pastor Paul has been preaching through Revelation, I find it fascinating in that book. One of the things that, yeah, really captivated me was the fact that God's grace is crazy huge. A lot of times we look at Revelation and we think his judgment is so harsh, but really over and over and over again, God gives opportunity for people to repent. But what does it say? It says that people refused to repent and glorify God. We have an opportunity to receive grace, but we have to accept it. And that's the easy part, like I say. It's easy to accept his grace, but then we need to work it out. It's not like, okay, I'm saved. Woohoo! Now I go and do what I want and how I live. No, we're saved to do good works, though. And that's where we need to work it out, but we don't do it alone. And that's the good news. And we're going to keep going through this. And so, so what does it look like? What does it mean to train, though? Like these effects of grace is training in godliness. Because it says, um, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. The effects of grace is to train us for godliness. That's what it's supposed to produce in our life. If we have received Jesus, well, then we should be living differently. People should be able to tell that we're Christians just by how we live, you know? Um, and, and it's cool because this word training, in the NIV, it says teaching. Um, and, but it's a little bit more than just teaching because in the 21st century, what we think about teaching is like what I'm doing today. I'm lecturing, right? And it's pretty passive on your part in a sense. And, and you could actually get up and go, I guess, if you wanted, you know. But teaching in a sense is lecturing in the 21st century. But back in the early church, teaching or training was actually really active. It was an active engagement on the students' part as well where we would do this together we would be more in a dialogue. We would be walking, we would be living, we would be doing this life together. See, teaching and training is a lot more active than what we think about today. And so this training has even a deeper connotation. You know, one commentator says that Paul displays grace as a tutor. So he's tutoring us. And who is he tutoring? Well, us, but it's who trains boys. This is like the connotation of this word training. 
who trains boys who are by nature stubborn and unruly. Guys, that's us. Maybe you don't think you're stubborn. I know I'm stubborn, and so I'm working on that. You know, marriage is like, mm, trying to get that out of me, right? Uh, like, we're stubborn. We're unruly. We're unkempt. We're like, I want to do my own thing. And godliness is training us to actually become not stubborn, <laughs> maybe a little bit moldable, Maybe, maybe actually godly. It, it says, it continues on, and he says that this speaking, or he speaks of a training in which the idea of correction and punishment is by no means excluded. Sometimes training actually requires discipline. And discipline from God, sometimes we think, how can a good God discipline us? Well, wouldn't a good father discipline his son if he's going wayward? Discipline is necessary, and that's actually God's grace to turn us back to the best life the life that he has for us. You know, discipline sometimes, um, or training sometimes requires hard work. We've got to put in some effort. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're supposed to work it out. We're supposed to work on it to become godly. You know, and it's, once again, it's not by our effort. It's not that we are saved by our works, but rather we are saved by grace to do good works, to live a godly life. And this takes a lot of different things. You know, um, what does it mean to train in godliness? What does this require? Well, you know, it's been fun. Trevor and I have, like, been on this journey of discovering, working out, and I've learned a ton. And I used to, I've always been active, but it's like, oh, this has been different. And it's been fun to learn and, and to just experiment or experience different aspects of working out. And maybe this is maybe a little bit judgmental, so forgive me. I'm confessing this, if this is a little bit judgmental. But it's kind of fun to watch people in the gym and just to, you know, basically judge their motives and see what, see what they're doing, you know? Um, <laughs> and it, partially it's because I know where I've been on my journey working out, right? And so sometimes it's like you watch people and it's like, yeah, you just want to be seen there. You take your selfie and you're good, you know? Like, and, and it's not really about making any progress in the gym, but it's about, I got my Instagram post, you know? And so some people, awesome, if that's your goal, check, right? Um, Other people, it's for a social purpose. I've totally been there. It's like, oh, I'm going to have a jaw day today, and I'm just going to go talk to people, you know? I'm not going to work out any muscles, just my mouth. And so sometimes there's people in the gym that are like that. Other times, there's people where it's like, they're there for mental health. That was me for a lot of the time, or it is a lot of the time, just because it's the one place where I clear my mind, and I don't think about all the junk in life, right? And I can just go and work out, Other people, it's like, it looks like they're doing a lot, but they're just going through the motions. They're not getting anywhere, you know? And so, and maybe that's super judgmental. I'm not meaning to be judgmental. It's just interesting. Because then when you see people who actually know what they're doing, you can tell there's a difference. Because how they train, they have focus. They have discipline. They work hard. They're not chatting, (laughs) They're just there. They're working. And there's a different intention with which they're working at. You can tell the difference. You know, training and godliness requires some of that same grit, in a sense. It requires us to actually be active and actually do it. We can't just sit back and expect to be godly. 
Yes, we are sanctified when we come to Jesus. We are cleansed. But then there's a progressive sanctification where we need to work out our salvation. It's an active part on our behalf. You know, we need to discipline ourselves. Maybe we need to get into the word. Maybe we need to discipline ourselves to get up early every morning and spend time with God in his word. You know, maybe we need to discipline ourselves to not listen to certain music or watch certain things um, because it says in Philippians, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, lovely, admirable, or praiseworthy, on these things you're supposed to think. So if we're having bad thoughts, maybe we need to replace them with some good thoughts. We need to discipline ourselves. We need to um, actually work hard at it. We need to focus to actually train for godliness. We need to be specific in our training. Am I aligning my life with a godly life? With a life that God would be proud of? With a life that God wants us to live? What does it mean to train? It means to train and to actually do it. Not just like, I'm saved, I'm good, I'm going to sit here and do my own thing and wait for heaven. (laughs) No, God has saved us to live a godly life. And we need to do some work. And once again, it's not about getting to heaven because of our good works. We are saved by grace. We're saved by grace, but in Ephesians 2, if I flip there really quick, um, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has saved us by the grace in the past to actually live a godly life today. And sometimes we can think, that sounds impossible. I can't be that good. You're expecting me to be perfect. No, I'm not expecting that. God's not expecting that. However, God does say, I want to empower you with my spirit so that you can live victoriously and a godly life. You know, this is maybe the most ridiculous analogy that you've ever heard, but I'm going to use it anyways. You know, in the gym, trainers are really good. Dennis is a really good trainer, so, you know, just plug for him. Um, And why are trainers good? Because they actually hold you accountable. They encourage you, they inspire you, and they show you proper technique. We have the very best trainer in our spiritual life. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God himself who shows us the right technique who shows us, hey, don't do that. Actually, go here, go do this. Don't do that. No, that's going to hurt you. That's not going to produce the godly life that you want. We have the very best trainer who encourages us and pushes us and inspires us to live a godly life. We have God himself living in us. And if I take this analogy one step further, which is ridiculous, but you know, it's almost like we're on steroids. We're that juice monkey. You know, we get to be on steroids because we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. He empowers us. So if we think it's impossible to live a godly life, well, then you don't know the power that lives within you. Because Jesus, when he rose again, he gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us God himself to help us live. In this Christian life, so many times, like, we, we focus on the attack or the battle or, oh, Satan's just after me. Yeah, the battle's always going on. That's the Christian life. So let's put that to rest and let's actually just start to realize, wow, Jesus has saved me. I have victory. 
I have power. I don't have to focus on the battle or on the attack anymore. I just need to stand in the victory that Jesus has bought. I just need to step into it. So whatever we're facing, whatever temptation, we can know we have victory. That's what Jesus has given us. You know, and if you are struggling because it's like, but I don't even want to live a good godly life. You know what? You're not alone. (laughs) That's why in Philippians 2 again, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he follows it up and he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. If you don't want to, well, guess what? Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me. I don't even want to do what's right here. We can't even want what's right. That's why Trevor and I pray, Lord, help us to want what you want. Because naturally, we don't. (laughs) I want my own way. But God helps us if we ask for it. You know, this is the power that lives within us. So what does it look like to train? What does that look like? It looks like partnering with the Holy Spirit and saying, Lord, help me to live a godly life. Help me to put in the discipline, the effort, the hard work with your empowerment to actually become godly. He continues on, and and actually, I just want to go over why is training a big deal? Like, why should we actually train in godliness? If we're saved in Jesus, we know we're going to heaven. Why does it matter if if I live a good life or not? Like, we're saved by grace and by faith. Does it really matter? Well, yeah, it does. Because once again, in the past, like he's already said, um, there's this past appearing of grace. And that should actually inspire us to live a godly life. And if it doesn't, if we don't want to live a godly life, I would actually question us, do we actually know what it cost Jesus to give us salvation? Do we really care? Or are we cheapening his sacrifice that he hung on a cross for You know, this is something that maybe we just need to search our souls and say, Holy Spirit, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, if, if I don't want to help me to go back to the cross, you know, sometimes the cross becomes old hat. Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, Jesus died. Maybe we need to go back there and just sit in that. Because that gift, that sacrifice that he paid, it should inspire us to actually live a godly life because it cost him everything and he gave us everything i don't want to cheapen god's sacrifice that's one reason why training is actually super important it's because of his sacrifice the second reason why it's super important to train is because of the future glory that's coming you know, if, if we read verse 13, so it says that we're training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in the present age. And also we're waiting for the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for God to come. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. This is what Pastor Paul has been preaching about through Revelation, that our God, our Savior, is going to come back to earth. And he's going to conquer once and for all. And he's going to wipe every tear from our face. There's going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. And heaven, the new heaven and the new earth is going to invade this earth. 
And this time in life that we are living is training ground for when that heaven invades this earth. And when we're in God's presence, it's a training ground to live a godly life. And you know, when I see Jesus, I don't want to be ashamed and think I didn't do my part. I don't want to just squeak into heaven. I want Jesus to say, well done. That should inspire us to live a godly life today. So why is it important to train in godliness? Well, because of the past grace that has been revealed, but also because of the future hope of glory that is going to come. And that should inform how we live today, that we would be godly. And once again, it's not on your own power. We need to partner with the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, teach me, show me what this looks like. But then how, how should we train? What does this actually look like? And there's two parts to training. And it's not just listening, but it's actually doing, like I've been saying, it's, it's an active part on our part, right? We have to actually do something. And, you know, in, um, once again, I'll use this physical analogy of working out, because now I know why Paul the Apostle used so many, like, analogies of the body or working out or athletics, because it just works. It makes sense, you know? Um, but when you're training, you can't just train one muscle and forget about the antagonizing muscle. So for, the, for arms, you have to do both biceps and triceps, You can't just do buys and forget about your tries, right? You need both. You need to be smart about your training. Well, you know, even so much so sprinters, I've heard that um, sprinters, you would think that they should just train their quads, and that's where their power comes from, to run fast. However, if they just train their quads and forget about the antagonizing muscle, the hamstring, they can use so much force from their quads that when they're kicking their foot forward, they can blow out their knee because they don't have that antagonizing muscle holding back that joint, that they can actually ruin their knee. That's why it's important to train both. And in godliness, when we're training to live a godly life, there's two parts that we need to train. And in verse 12, if I go back there, it says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life. So there's two parts turning from one and pursuing the other. So we need to renounce ungodliness, turn towards um, godly living. So what does that look like? You know, ungodliness, for instance, what is that? Basically things that don't align with God, with what, who God is and what he desires for us, or it's putting other things in God's place, worshiping the gift that God gives rather than the giver, who is God himself. And so here, we're called to renounce ungodliness. So what are things that are coming in place of God that you're actually putting on the altar instead of God himself as, as the throne? What things? You know, as I've been preparing, it's like, Holy Spirit, search me. And you know, I'm a movie junkie. I love movies. I hate TV shows, but I love movies. But the Holy Spirit's been like, Amy, maybe you need to rein it in. You know, what, like video games, that's a rampant thing for younger people's generation. How much time are we spending on video games? Is that taking the place of the godly life that God wants us to live? Is that taking place of God? What about music? What kind of music are we listening to? And maybe it could be our career that we're focusing on our career. Maybe it's um, the relationship 
that you're focusing on, that you're putting in God's spot instead of God himself. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe you're just working to gain more and more and more, and that's your drive and that's your focus in life. Maybe sports, maybe academics. I don't know what it is. I'm not you. I don't know where you're at, but God does. And if if you want to train well, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, Lord, is there something I need to renounce? Is there something I need to turn from that I need to say no to? And there's lots of good things, but sin always skews God's good gifts. And sometimes they can become an idol. Maybe we need to renounce something today. Maybe we need to repent. You know, it continues on and says, so renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. So what is worldly passions? Well, basically sinful desires. You know, we can desire more and more and more possessions. Lust, that's the big one that I think of when I read worldly passions. Because our culture is saturated with sexual content. You can't walk down the mall without seeing soft porn. And this is what our kids are growing up with. I work with students. You know, pornography starts very young, and it's not just for men, it's for women as well. And you know what? We do not have to succumb to temptation anymore. You might think it's impossible to quit. No, it's not. Then you don't know the power of God in you. It's time to stop. It's time to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live the better life that God has for us, a life of freedom, a life that's full of Jesus. You know, we need to actually take a stand as a church, and we need to be an example to the young people. You know, I'm, I'm floored, actually, by how many Christians say that they're Christians and yet they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend or they're living together before marriage. You guys, like, and if you're not a Christian today, this doesn't apply to you because you don't have to live under God's standards if you're not a Christian. But if you are claiming to be a Christian, there's a responsibility to live a godly life. You know, I had somebody ask me a while ago, who's a new believer? And I love this question. I love that, that they ask, is it actually possible to live pure, to live in purity before marriage? And I said, by yourself, no. <laughs> but with the Holy Spirit, yes, it is possible. We don't have to just be like, well, you know, it's sinful nature. <laughs> I just struggle with it. Well, everybody struggles with sexual temptation. And God says that I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. So that means in 2018, even with the sexual promiscuity that's going on everywhere, that means God gives us his power to actually live a godly life. We just need to partner with the Holy Spirit and say, God, come and help me. We're supposed to look different than the world, but why are we looking the same as the world? This isn't supposed to be condemning. So if you are living in this way, confess it, receive God's grace, and move forward in his power to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It is possible. God has given us everything. He's given us himself. His power, same power that rose Christ from the dead, he empowers us to live this godly life. It's not supposed to be condemning, but maybe convicting. Because conviction actually leads to repentance, which leads to godliness. And that's the good life that God desires. This is why Jesus came. You know, 
maybe we need to say no to the fun of going out and dancing. Yeah, dancing can be fun. Drinking one drink, what's that going to hurt? That's not evil. No, that's not evil. But alcoholism starts with one drink. I've had friends who, who picked up and became alcoholics again because they were with Christians, their Christian friends, who just had a social drink, and that led them back into their snare. I've had friends at 19 have to admit, I'm an alcoholic. And we never know who's struggling with what. Maybe we need to ask God, Lord, do I need to give something up? Say no. Not that it's wrong in and of itself, but am I going to cause somebody else to stumble? You know, just because weed is legal, does that mean we should smoke it? Probably not. You know, like... Our standards, by God's standards, are not the same as the world's standards. And because of the grace that God has given us, because of the glory that is going to be revealed, we should long to live a godly life. We should train to live a godly life. And it's not on your own power. So this isn't supposed to be heavy, but it's actually with the power of the Holy Spirit. We have victory in Jesus In Jesus' name, there is victory, there is joy, there is fullness of salvation, fullness of joy. That's what God has given us. So is it supposed to be condemning? No. But it is maybe supposed to be convicting. And allow the Holy Spirit to do his work to lead you into godliness. Lastly, though, I just want to hit on this one last reason why it's important to train in righteousness. Um... Sorry. Oh, actually, we should go here, I guess. <laughs> Second prong of training. <laughs> Second prong of training. So the first prong is we need to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but we also need to turn towards a godly living. And you know, and when whenever you're quitting something, you need to almost replace it with something else. And the way that we're able to say no to ungodliness is the first part, self-control. We need self-control in order to say no to to temptation, to sinful desires, worldly passions. We need self-control. And what is self-control? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. You know, Galatians 5, right? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we struggle with these things, ask the Holy Spirit. It's His fruit produced in us so that we can say no and so that we can pursue a self-controlled and upright life. So upright, meaning conduct that cannot be condemned so that when people look at you, they have nothing bad to say about you because you're not a hypocrite. You're actually living the life that God has empowered you to live. You know, and, and lastly, to live those godly lives, a life that is pleasing to God so that when we see him face to face, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We need to train to do that because that doesn't come naturally. We need to say no, but we need to train. And the more you do something, so piano, for instance, the more you practice, why do you practice? So that you have muscle memory. So that you don't have to think while you're playing. It just comes naturally. That's why we practice. That's why we train. So that the movement, the muscle memory, the nervous system already knows what to do. Well, the same is true in living a godly life. So that we actually pursue Jesus that we live this upright and godly life. And it's possible because of Jesus' grace, because of his sacrifice, because the Holy Spirit that he's given us. We don't need to be defeated. We can actually rise above, and we can live that godly life. Is it hard sometimes? Yeah. 
I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I will say it'll be worth it. Because God has the very best in store. If he asks us to do something, it's for our good. And if he asks us to do something, he's also going to empower us to do it. But now lastly, like I was going to get to before when I realized I forgot this, um, (laughs) why else should we train in godliness? And again, um, obviously, the past appearing of grace, which we've talked about, and the future hope of his glory that's going to come. But if we read verse 12 again, this is pretty important. It says that training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So when I dusted off my Greek again, and I looked at that little phrase, present age, it's actually in the date of case. And what that means is that it is a noun that is supposed to be affected by the subject's action. So grace is the subject. Its action is to train us for godliness. Why? To affect the present age. See, why is it important that we live a godly life? Because there are lives on the line. Because people, our world is going to hell. If they don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. And how are they going to know unless we show them? We need to be living a godly life in order to impact the present age. How am I supposed to preach the gospel if I'm not living an upright life? If I'm not living a joy-filled life, why would anybody want to follow Jesus? If I'm not living any differently than them, why would they need Jesus? We need to be living a godly life. Why? Because your neighbor depends on it. Your coworker, their salvation depends on it. Not that it's by you, but what does Matthew say when, when Jesus is preaching on the Sermon of the Mount? He says, you're supposed to be salt and light so that men may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. They don't worship you and think, wow, you're such a good person. Or if they do think that, say, no, I'm not a good person, but my God has changed me. And Jesus wants to set you free. You know, Philippians, again, I love this passage, and it aligns so well with Titus. Of Philippians, it says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And then it continues on, and it says, do all these things without grumbling and disputing. You know, especially on Tuesday morning when we have to go back to work after a long weekend and we don't really want to be there and we're complaining, maybe we shouldn't. (laughs) Or when we're arguing with other people, maybe we shouldn't to live a godly life, right? And it continues on and he says that you may be blameless and pure, children of God in a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the universe as you hold out the word of God. Why are we supposed to live a godly life? Because we need to be the light in a dark world. We need to show and give and and preach the good news to those who don't know Jesus. It's imperative. It's not an option. Is it hard? Yeah, that's why we got to train for it. But is it possible? Definitely, because God has given us his power. So this morning, what does that look like for you? How do you need to train? What does it look like to train in godliness this week? Maybe it means first repentance. Maybe there's something that God is kind of like, hey, what about this? You need to give that up. You need to say no to that. Because it's just bringing about destruction and pain. Repent and turn towards God. 
Maybe that's the first part of training in godliness today. Or maybe for some of you, maybe it's about disciplining your life, adding things into your life that are godly, that are upright, getting into the word, prayer, service in the church, or serving the community, or maybe it's just working on joy and saying, Holy Spirit, can you produce this in me? So when I want to complain, that you would actually stop my mouth so that I can actually be joyful, despite what's going on around me. Maybe it's love for those people that really irritate you. You know what? Why see Bob Goff talked about love the creep. <laughs> you know, that person you really don't like, love them anyways. Who's that creepy person? Just love them. I loved it and it stuck with me. Maybe, maybe you need to ask Holy Spirit, produce love in me. Produce joy. Produce self-control. Produce patience with my kids <laughs> or with my siblings. Or my coworkers. <laughs> I don't know. What does it look like to train for godliness for you? I'm not you. But ask the Holy Spirit. And we will all have different ways that this looks. Because we're all different people faced with different um, situations. And we all have different personalities. We all have different tendencies and hang-ups. That we need to actually say no to and pursue godliness. It looks different for every one of us. But this is what I do know. The Holy Spirit will empower you. It's by grace you have been saved. And it's because of grace that we can live a godly life. And it's because of the future hope of glory and that desire to hear well done that we should want to live a godly life today. So this morning, if you want to stand with me, we're going to close this service. And first off, I just want to, I, I always like to offer it, just in case anybody doesn't know Jesus here today, but after hearing about the sacrifice that Jesus has paid on your behalf, maybe today you're like, I want to declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And if that, that's you, I want to pray with you. So if heads and eyes can be bowed and closed, and, and if you have never received Jesus before, if you want to today, I'd encourage you, raise your hand, and I just want to pray with you there's anybody here cool now I also want to ask and I want to pray for an empowerment a, a fresh anointing for us as Jesus' kids as the ones who are saved by grace to actually empower us to live a godly life so if you need a fresh anointing I'd encourage you to raise your hand pray for a fresh anointing to live a godly life, to train in godliness. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you, Lord. You're so good. We didn't deserve salvation, and yet you gave it freely. You gave us grace. This gift that we did not earn or could not earn. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. And, Lord, we just ask, in light of that, we want to live a godly life. But, Lord, we know that we still struggle against sin and temptation. But, Jesus, you have overcome sin and temptation. And so, Lord, we receive your power now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would anoint us afresh, that you would fill us and empower us to go out and to live a godly life, a life that honors you and glorifies you so that when people look, they ask what's different and we can say my God has saved me and he has redeemed me and he's empowering me to live differently. So Lord I just thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would bless them and that you would send them out in the power of your spirit. In Jesus name. Amen.
peace and 